Today is Acts 2 and can be found on page 1093 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back uh, and page numbers for those are on the screen. So, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Soon, however, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. Why, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will see will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body, will, my body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. 
God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. With many other words, he warned them, And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Uh, My name is Richard. If we haven't met, I'm one of the uh, curates here. Uh, It's great to... I'll be here. We're going to look at that chapter of Acts together. If you've got it open in front of you, it'd be great to keep it there. Uh, we're going to consider that chapter together uh, as we turn to it again. Should we pray together? Let's pray. God, our Father, who poured your Spirit into the world on the day of Pentecost, we call on you in the name of Jesus that again the Spirit would breathe through his word that as we hear him speak, he would show us Jesus and bring us to repentance and to faith in him. Amen. If you had two words, two words to describe Jesus Christ, what would be your two words? I have a think. I'm not going to ask you to say that out loud. Just have a think. Two words to describe Jesus. Uh, what would you choose? I ask that question because Acts 2, which we just had read, puts front and center the question of not only who is Jesus, but what do you think of him? How do you relate to him and how does he relate to you? We'll uh, skip uh, to the end, as it were, then we'll go back to the beginning. Uh, Verse 36, chapter 2, verse 36, is the climax of Acts 2. And Peter says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I don't know how they compare to your two words. Peter, in the first ever Christian sermon to the world, Peter says, Jesus, he's the Lord. That is the one God has appointed to rule all things forever, to judge everyone, and he's the Messiah. 
That is the king God promised who would come and save his people and lead them. Peter says to the world, you need to know Jesus, the Lord and the Messiah. And that's personal for Peter. He says it's personal for those who are listening to him. This isn't the kind of a documentary that you just flick on, you know, on the documentary channel, the history channel. You don't just flick this on and go, oh, ancient Egypt. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I learned something about ancient Egypt. That's very interesting. You know, what's on next? Oh, Babylon. Oh, ancient Babylon. I learned something about Babylon. And what's next? Oh, Jesus. Oh, he's Lord and Messiah. That's very interesting. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Okay. What's next? What's for dinner? It's not like that. See, Peter says, uh, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. It's personal for Peter's audience. You killed him. And he's the one who runs and will judge the universe. Every now and then you hear those stories, don't you, of a a CEO who, for the day, takes off their, you know, flashy suit, expensive suit, and puts on overalls and works on the shop floor, sort of undercover, just to get a sense of what it's like uh, to work in their company. And so they, you know, go into the factory floor or whatever it is, they uh, the cash registers, they work for a day and uh, to see what it's like. And imagine one of those CEOs come in, comes in to do that. And there's a couple of employees who've been there quite a while. They don't like the new people coming in. They're just a bit fed up of new people coming in all the time because they don't know it's the CEO. And so they just give them a rough time. However it is, all day, they're just niggling away, mistreating, uh, being unfair, harassing. And the next day, to their surprise, the manager comes over there. Their line manager comes over and says, you have to report to the head office. The CEO wants to see you. It's a little surprising. Do you know what's going on? No, I, I don't know what's going on. I've just been told you have to report there. You know, the CEO is sort of 17 rungs above us. What's going on? And they go to head office and they go up in the elevator and you know, there's lots of floors up to the elevator and they're wondering what on earth is going on. And they reach the floor and they walk into the office and they see the CEO's face. Ah. We really messed up yesterday. That emotion, but on a much larger scale, is what this sermon of Peter's does with those who are in front of him. Verse 37, after uh, Peter said that, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? This Jesus, who you crucified, God has made Lord and Messiah. It's not a It's not a fact you can just pass on and notice and go, that's very interesting, or that's not very interesting, and then move on. It's personal. What you make of Jesus Christ and what he makes of you, Peter says the most crucial thing uh, there is about you. As we jumped ahead, uh, uh, that's kind of where we're going. Uh, we'll, we'll work back through what Peter says to see how he proves that. I mean, anyone can claim that someone's the Lord and Messiah. You could, you, you could claim that about yourself. Uh, we'll see how Peter persuades his audience that that's the case. What's his argument? What's his proof? And then we'll see how he calls people to respond, how he calls us to respond to the truth that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. First, let's see how he gets there. Uh, what's his argument? Uh, if you're here last week, we started looking at this book of Acts, Uh, We said it's a book that's written by Luke, uh, that we would be certain, that we would be sure of the things about Jesus that we saw last week, uh, that we'd be certain that Jesus is establishing his kingdom. 
that he's building a kingdom of, of peace and security, a kingdom that's forever and for you. And in Acts 2, one of the things that Jesus promised comes true. Jesus promised that he would send his spirit so that his followers, his disciples, would be prepared, equipped, ready to speak of him. And that's exactly what happens in Acts 2, as we had it read. In the first 13 verses, we have the, the story of that happening, the spirit coming on the disciples, and there's, there's wind, and there's fire, and there's power. And we don't have time to look at the details, but verse 4 that gets the heart of what's going on. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Notice two things about what happens when the Spirit comes. He comes to all of them. That first word in verse 4, all of them were filled. Not just the leaders, not just the elites, not just the ones that everyone looks up to. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. And that, as that speech goes on, this crowd gathers from all around the world. It's the Pentecost festival in Jerusalem. So people are there for the festival and they, they come and, and they hear all kinds of people in their own mother languages are hearing these apostles speak. Languages that these apostles had never learned. The Spirit's giving them power to speak. So when the Spirit comes, he comes to all of Jesus' followers and allows them to speak about Jesus. Verse 13, in the crowd, some in the crowd made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. It was this kind of spectacle going on. What's going on? Some are very interested. Some say, this is odd. This is ridiculous. They're drunk. Peter, one of the apostles, stands up and says, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. I know it's a festival. I know we're having a good time here in Jerusalem. It's a little early for us all to be drunk. I know you should recognize what's going on. This is what God said would happen through the prophet Joel. Verse 16, Peter says, Now this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes, In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my Spirit on all people. Again, you see, Joel promised that the Spirit would come to all people. And he explains, sons and daughters, young men, old men, servants, free, all kinds of different kinds of people, the Spirit would come on all of them. And the result would be, verse 17, verse 18, they will prophesy. They will speak. We'll see as Acts 2 goes on, especially they'll, they'll speak of Jesus and the salvation that comes in him. So Peter says, look, what you're seeing is it's not people being drunk. It's, it shouldn't actually be surprising if you've read the Bible, which the Jerusalem, Jerusalem, therefore Pentecost would have done. This is exactly what Joel said would happen, that all of God's people would receive the Holy Spirit and they'd speak in the name of God about Jesus. So Peter's explained that's what's going on. The Spirit's come and God's people have started to speak about Jesus. And from verse 22, he really uh, starts his sermon. He's explained what's going on. He says, here's what I want you to know. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Here's what God wants you to know. Here's why God sent his Spirit into the world so you can know this. And there's three quick things about Jesus. A sort of a, a Jesus overview, very quickly. And then Peter builds to his big point. Jesus is Messiah and Lord. That's the quick thing starting in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. God sent Jesus. He proved it through the miracles, the wonders, the signs that Jesus did. Whatever people might claim 
uh, to do today. There is no one really in history who's even claimed to do the sort of things that it's recorded Jesus did in the Gospels. God was endorsing him, proving, I sent him. God sent Jesus. Peter wants them to know. Secondly, verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God sent him. You killed him. And just in passing, just notice there, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Whatever dark days come in life, in your life, in the life of your family, in the world, there isn't a darker day than when God came to walk the earth, the man who God sent, and and humanity decided, let's kill him. As Peter will call it in the next chapter, you killed the author of life. The one who invented life. The one who invented light and joy. Came into the earth and we decided to kill him. There's not been a darker day in the history of the universe. And it was a day that came about by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And so if it's true of that day, it's true of any day, however dark, that whatever it might look like, God is not out of control. God continues to be working out his purposes of love and salvation in the universe. As on that day, so on every day. Peter says, firstly, God sent him. Secondly, you killed him. Thirdly, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Impossible for death to grip onto him. Death has a pretty firm grip. And yet here was someone who escaped death's grip, who broke free, who rose from the dead. God sent him. You killed him. God raised him. That's the little Jesus overview that Peter gives. God sent him. You killed him. God raised him. And then Peter starts from verse 25. Peter starts to to build towards his conclusion, his climax. This Jesus who you crucified is both Lord and Messiah. And uh, it's slightly uh, close logic, uh, so I've got some uh, things that might help us uh, just to get a sense of it. In verse 25 to 32, Peter's saying, the Old Testament says the one who rises from the dead is the Messiah. So carry on from verse 25. Uh, David said about him, David writing in the Old Testament, the early part of the Bible, in one of the Psalms, you can, you can read it in the book of Psalms. David says this, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence. David wrote a song about living forever. About not being abandoned to the dead. About his body not decaying. And Peter makes the obvious point that that is nonsense. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. What David sung about didn't happen for him because he wasn't writing about himself. Verse 30, he was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, 
He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. See, David was never writing about himself. He was writing about the Messiah. The Messiah who would come, God's king, God's savior who would come, and he wouldn't be abandoned to the dead. His body wouldn't decay. The one one who rises from the dead is the Messiah. That's what the Old Testament promised. And verse 32 God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. We saw Jesus after he'd been raised to life. And you put those two together, Jesus is the Messiah. The one who'll be raised from the dead is the Messiah. We saw Jesus raised from the dead. He's the Messiah. Now, we'll come back to Peter. We just need to pause there for a moment. And uh, we'll do this a couple of times, just sort of jump forward 2,000 years. Because it's all well and good for Peter to say... God raised Jesus and we saw him. And you know, there's loads of people who saw him and you can go and talk to them and they're all around the place. But of course, 2,000 years later, that isn't true. Those people are now dead. You can't ask them. And so what do we do with a claim like this? That Jesus rose from the dead, that he was seen and witnessed. There's lots of things we could say. Uh, let me just uh, introduce you uh, to uh, Pinchas Lapid. I was, uh, came across him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Pinchas Lapid is a, an Orthodox Jewish historian theologian. He's an Orthodox Jew, not a Christian. Uh, he's explicitly, he'll say, Jesus isn't the Jewish Messiah. So he's disagreeing with Peter here. But here's what he says. How is it the disciples who by no means excelled in intelligence, eloquence, or strength of faith? Thanks, Pinchas, the, the disciples are saying. Uh, how is it? that they were able to begin their virtuous, mar- victorious march of conversion. The resurrection of Jesus is the most rational explanation. Do you see Lapid's question? You have these disciples, and there's two options, really. Uh, they were wrong when they said that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe they were sort of sincerely mistaken. Uh, maybe they were malicious, trying to trick people, but they were wrong, or they were right. And you've got to wonder how this group of uh, uneducated, uh, in, uh, poorly connected, unimpressive, not very wealthy. How did this little group of people take this message that Jesus rose from the dead and have it go worldwide? As we saw last week, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. How did that happen? How is it that no one ever produced the body of Jesus and said, look, here he is? How is it that no one ever tortured one of them enough that they said, no, 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 we, we made it up, I, I give up? A lot of them were killed pretty brutally. Maybe they were wrong. Lapide would say the most rational explanation, Jesus did rise from the dead. And that's why their message could spread. That's why they had the confidence, the certainty that they'd keep speaking. What you think is the most uh, rational explanation Maybe you're with Lapid. Maybe you think it's something different. That's something we could uh, talk about later. I'd be very happy to, uh, to talk about that. But you can't ignore the fact that this claim that someone rose from the dead, and it's not that 2,000 years ago people were stupid and thought that happened all the time. It's fairly obvious that when people die, they stay dead. How did that claim spread? How did that claim take the world? How did it gain traction? The Bible would say because it's true. Okay, back to Peter. Uh, The Old Testament says the one who rises from the dead is Messiah, and we saw Jesus after he'd been raised to life. Uh, He's the Messiah. But then secondly, he's the Lord. Uh, Let's pick up verse 34. 
Verse 34. David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So again, the Old Testament says the one who sits at God's right hand is the Lord. David speaks of this Lord sitting at God's right hand. And he's not talking about himself. He never ascended to heaven. He's talking about one to come. And he's talking about Jesus. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. It's a slightly complicated verse with lots going on. It helps take it backwards, I think. There's something that you guys see and hear. The, the, the people there in Jerusalem, uh, what you see is you see this group of disciples who've come together and are speaking, spilling out of this building and speaking of Jesus. You hear them doing it in all kinds of different languages. How do you explain that? Because the Holy Spirit is at work in them, allowing them to do that. Okay, how do you explain that? Because Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit on his people. How do you explain that? Because Jesus has received the Holy Spirit from his Father. How do you explain that? Because Jesus is sitting on his throne in heaven. Or again, play it forwards as it goes in verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. No one but the Lord in heaven sat at the right hand of God can receive the Holy Spirit from his Father and pour it out. And so again, it comes together. The Old Testament says the one who sits at God's right hand is Lord. And you've seen Jesus pouring out the Spirit from there, from God's right hand. So Jesus is the Lord. Now again, it's all very well for Peter to say that, but we didn't see it. We weren't there. We didn't see the Spirit being poured out or his effect on that early church or his effect in the world. Except actually maybe we have. Again, another uh, historian, historian sociologist, uh, Rodney Stark, who, uh, actually, I uh, wrote this book uh, about 10 years ago. At the time, he said he was agnostic on questions of faith. He was just interested in the Christian movement as a, as a sort of historical question. I, I found out just this week, he's uh, now saying that he's a Christian in part because of some of this research. But at the time, an agnostic, no sort of uh, agenda to prove. Uh, writing this book, The Triumph of Christianity, how is it that the Christian message triumphed in the sense of it it lasted, it endured, it spread through the world. And he gives lots of reasons, but he says one of the big ones is because of Christian mercy. There are lots of the values we take for granted today, especially the idea that people have equal value. Man or woman, slave or free, emperor or citizen or slave, have equal value, equal dignity. That wasn't a common idea. That wasn't a Roman idea or a Greek idea. It's not an idea that arised, arrived, 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 appeared during the Enlightenment. He says that idea came from Christianity. Here's one thing he says in the book. Indeed, the impact of Christian mercy was so evident that in the 4th century, when the Emperor Julian attempted to restore paganism, he exhorted the pagan priesthood to compete with the Christian charities. Here's what uh, Emperor Julian said. The impious Galileans, that's Christians, in addition to their own, they support ours. It's shameful that our poor should be wanting, should be lacking our aid. But, this is Stark again, but there was little or no response to Julian's proposals because there were no doctrines and no traditional practices for the pagan priests to build upon. 
See, Stark is saying that there was nothing in Roman civilization, Greek civilization, that gave a foundation for loving each other. And so when Julian says to the pagan priests, we should be looking after the people among us who are poor. The Christians are looking after our poor. That's shocking. He says that, he shouts that, he's the emperor, he's got some clout, but nothing really changes. Because there's nothing in the the pagan thought, the Greek thought, the Roman thought, that would give you a reason to love those who are poor, who seem to be less than you. But in the church, that's what happens. At the end of Acts 2, we, we read about a community where people loved one another, were devoted to one another, sold their stuff to look after one another. And again, I'd ask the question, how do you explain that? That this idea of sacrificing myself to serve others, of valuing other people equally, whatever their status, things which might seem obvious to us, but were completely alien in that context. How did those ideas, how did that ethic take hold and spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth? The Bible would say because the Spirit came and changed people and grew in people fruit of love. Again, you might have other ideas. I'd be very happy to talk about them. Uh, But that's something the Bible would say. Peter would say, this is how it goes. The Old Testament says the one who raises from the dead is Messiah. We saw Jesus after he'd been raised to life. He's the Messiah. The Old Testament says the one who sits at God's right hand is Lord. And you've seen Jesus pouring out the Spirit from there. No one can pour out the Spirit apart from the one who's been appointed Lord. And so... Verse 36, we're back to it. Verse 36, therefore, because of all of this, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's where Peter ends up. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And it is, as we said before, it's personal. Because if you stand opposed to the one who is Lord and Messiah, if you killed him, there is no one who can rescue you from him. In one of those quotes from the Old Testament, we heard about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God until his enemies were made a footstool for his feet. And if he is the Lord and if he is the Messiah, there's no one who can rescue his crucifiers, his killers from him. And so for that congregation, it is personal. They were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Now for the final time, we need to jump from then to now, from them to us. Because we didn't crucify Jesus. I'm going to just take out that last word uh, for a minute. God has made this Jesus, uh, both Lord and Messiah, who you... How do we relate to this? Because we weren't there, we weren't the ones who were shouting for his death, who were at the side of the cross, sort of spitting at him and sneering and mocking him. How do we relate to this? Can I say it's not enough. It won't do to say, I've never bothered Jesus, why would he bother me? I have a friend who said that to me a couple of years ago. I, the thing I don't get about Jesus... I, I'm, a sort of, I'm a liberal sort of person. I sort of live and let live. I ignore people. Why can't they ignore me? I, I ignore Jesus. Why can't he ignore me? But Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah. He isn't your next door neighbor who you can 
choose to ignore. Uh, he, uh, Peter goes on, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ's call to the world, to everyone. As Acts goes on later, we'll hear another sermon where Paul says that God has commanded everyone everywhere to repent. Because Jesus is Lord and Christ, the call that comes to every human being is to repent and be baptized in his name, to, to repent, to turn from my a conviction that I'm in charge, that I can run the world, that I don't need Jesus, that I'm the Lord, to repent of that and to be baptized in his name, a sign of allegiance to him. That is Jesus Christ's call to every human being who's lived and does live. To repent and to be baptized, to turn to him and pledge allegiance to him. And there is no option of avoiding Jesus. You might avoid him for this life, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. But if he is the Lord and the Messiah, then one day every one of us will be called up the elevator into his office and stand before him. And he'll say, I commanded everyone to repent and be baptized in my name. And then how we've related to him, how you fill in that little word with a question mark, becomes the most critical thing, the most important thing there is to know about you in that moment and from there for all eternity. Jesus commands everyone, everywhere, to repent and to be baptized in his name. I ignore Jesus, why can't he ignore me? Won't work on that day. But there is astonishing news. If at this point Peter's audience are thinking... We'd rather this wasn't true about Jesus. He's, we killed him. He's raised. He'll judge us. Then there was astonishing news. In the end of verse 38, Repent, uh, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true for that group there, the offer of forgiveness, then it's true for everyone in the world. These are the people who had killed Jesus, who'd shouted for his death, who'd stood as he was dying and had mocked him, and he says he'll forgive them. As our imaginary couple of employees are going up in the elevator, as they walk into the CEO's office, as they see the face, they know what they're expecting. But there is no man, no woman, who's ever lived who's like this Jesus, who says to those who've killed him, a turn to me, a pledge allegiance to me, and you'll be forgiven. And, forgiven and, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I will pour out on you not my anger and my wrath and my judgment and my fury. I'll pour out on you my spirit. That you will live. That you'll share in my life. That is the call of Jesus to the world. I asked you a little while ago, what two words come to your mind as you describe him to someone else? If they're words that fall short of him being Lord and Messiah, then he calls everyone everywhere to repent, to repent, to turn from wrong ideas of him, little views of him, ignoring of him. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. But for those who know him as such, who have called on his name, there is no one who can take you from him or take him from you. If he is the Lord and the Messiah, if God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah, whom you trust, who you belong to, who you've called upon, 
then there's safety. There's forgiveness. There's the gift of the Spirit. There's safety with Jesus. As we close, I have uh, written a short prayer. A prayer that seems to me to be an appropriate response to uh, these truths, to Peter's sermon, to Jesus being Lord and Messiah. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read it twice. Uh, once so that you hear what it is, and then a second time so that if you want, uh, you can join in it with me. Perhaps the thousandth time you've prayed a prayer like this, confessing who Jesus is and turning again to him. Perhaps that's something you've never done before. And perhaps with the 3,000 on that day who were, were cut to the heart and realized we've, we've misjudged Jesus and we need to come to him and ask his forgiveness. Perhaps this would be a prayer to pray for the first time tonight. I'll read it once and then I'll uh, pray it. And uh, quietly, uh, you could pray with me. Lord God, I acknowledge that you have made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. I turn from my ignoring and rejecting him. I call to you in the name of Jesus. Please forgive my sins and pour out your spirit on me. Amen. I'll pray again, if you want uh, to join with me. Lord God, I acknowledge that you have made Jesus both Lord and Christ. I turn from my ignoring and rejecting him. I call to you in the name of Jesus. Please forgive my sins and pour your spirit on me. Amen. Father, I pray for us, for those who are trusting in the name of Jesus, for those who have called on him, whether we've been doing that for years or for the first time tonight, Father, please, would we know the forgiveness that you promised? Would we know the gift of the spirit with us and in us? Uh, for those who aren't sure about Jesus, for those who wouldn't call him Lord and Messiah, uh, Father, please, for those, for all of us, would you continue to reveal Jesus to us, that we'd see him clearly now, uh, before that day when we see him face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.